0: Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr Ewan Lawson and today's episode involves an interview with the rather wonderful and charming Professor Chris French. Now Chris is an active sceptic and he's also the head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths University of London. Uh, and you're probably wondering, like everybody else, as Chris says in the interview, exactly what that involves. But basically, he's a psychologist who looks at paranormal phenomenon, and he tells us a little bit more about that at the start of the interview. So Chris is also special advisor. He's the former editor-in-chief of the Skeptic magazine, and that's basically the UK's longest running skeptical magazine. And it was him that came up with the strapline, pursuing truth through evidence and reason, sorry, through reason and evidence. Evidence, I think, is the actual strap line. And I think that's a nice description of what skepticism is. And um, we talk about all sorts of different things. Yes, we cover a little bit about the paranormal side, but it really leads into some interesting discussions about skepticism around near death experiences, about the bias involved in conspiracy theories. An anti-vaccination lobby and all the other kind of complexities of how our brains work and how we go about making sense of medical evidence. So it gives us a bit of an opportunity to discuss the limits and the weaknesses of the scientific method, and um, how we can all help. How how we can all come to sound reasoned decisions in all areas of our life. We also managed to squeeze in a little bit about risk perception, uh, MMR vaccines, and also the wonderful. Um, And I highly recommend it, Skeptics in the Pub movement, which is a chance to get along to lots of people talking about science, skepticism um, and lots of interesting discussions. Uh, Links all on the show notes. And Chris talks a little bit more about them in the interview as well. So just very quickly, many thanks to all of you who get in touch about the podcast. It's very much appreciated. Uh, You can, of course, support it by sharing it with your friends, leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they like to call themselves these days. That's all very much appreciated. Do pop along to the website, blocology.io. And I've got a couple of new blog posts up there, the most recent one being about leaving Facebook and what I'm doing instead of spending my time looking at social media. Um so please do get in touch, uh, though I'm not so easy to get hold of on social media these days. Uh, I certainly respond to all my emails. Uh, Blokology at Gmail will certainly get through to me. So back to the interview. And the first thing that we went through and I wanted to ask Chris about was just to tell us a little bit more about the work he does and the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit. All
1: right. What Anomalistic Psychology is... It's primarily focused upon trying to uh, come up with and preferably test uh, non-paranormal explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences. Um, Nobody's doubting that people do have weird experiences. The question is, what's the best explanation? What's the best interpretation of them? And the reason that... um, I ended up called, kind of going for anomalistic psychology as the title. Obviously, it relates to anomaly. It's not me that came up with the actual phrase. Um, but I used to kind of, people would ask me, well, what's, you know, what's your area of research? And it was a bit of a mouthful to say, oh, it's the psychology of ostensibly paranormal experiences and paranormal beliefs. And so I wanted to get a shorthand way of saying that, and anomalistic psychology seemed to be the best term to go for. But now, of course, people just immediately say, what the hell is an honest psychology so i still have to come out with a lengthy definition anyway but yeah that's what it is so what
0: kind of what kind of, will you describe paranormal what are the range of experiences that, i mean as you say the and it's probably it's an important point isn't it that you're not you uh, no we can talk about this a bit in a uh, uh, bit later you're not saying people are not having these experiences you perhaps are questioning where those experiences come from but what, what sort of ranges of experiences are people having
1: I mean I mean it's it there is a is a very very wide range and in terms of defining what you mean by paranormal again it's one of those uh, terms that you can write an entire chapter about um it, uh, the way I use it is pretty much the way that the general public and the the media use it it's anything weird and wonderful so it's anything from people who think they've been abducted by aliens to people who think their houses are haunted, to people who think they've got psychic powers. Um, and, and even kind of goes beyond that as well. I mean, there are, you know, the range of human experiences is, is, is fascinating. The range of bizarre beliefs is fascinating and um, all of that weird stuff just does fascinate me i want to get to the bottom of uh, why people might believe this stuff so i
0: really should ask how did you how did you get into this little niche because i mean there there are lots of different angles with psychology and but this is a particularly unusual one and how how did you get led into it
1: well again um what, what happened there was that for most of my life up until early adulthood i believed in a lot of this stuff I mean, I was interested. I think like like a lot of people, as a teenager, I watched TV programs, I read books, I read articles in newspapers, and most of the the stuff that was there was totally kind of non-skeptical. It was very pro-paranormal, often kind of quite sensationalistic, but it was interesting anyway. Um, And it wasn't until I was doing my PhD which was on a completely different topic. It was now cerebral hemisphere function as measured by EEG. Um, And someone just recommended a particular book that they'd just read that I thought I would like. It was called Parapsychology, Science or Magic. And it was by a Canadian psychologist called James Alcock. And I did indeed enjoy the book and I found it very compelling. And it was the first skeptical treatment in this area that I'd ever read. And suddenly I realized that there the were skeptical books out there. That the, You know, you had to dig around a little bit at that point to find them. This was the early 80s. Um, and that then became a kind of side interest, a hobby. And slowly it kind of developed from there. I mean, I started at Goldsmiths in 85 and did a couple of lectures on Uh, the paranormal which the students seem to enjoy and then 10 years later I realized that I could put on a whole module on this stuff now you know Um, which I did and then gradually started doing little bits and bobs of research until it 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 was interesting for a while because uh, you know as you say it is a bit of a niche area And, and some people certainly back then kind of you know used to kind of raise an eyebrow why why are you interested in all this stuff you know um, the kind of attitude of we all know it's nonsense so why are you wasting your time on it well first off i don't think that's a genuinely scientific open-minded attitude i mean you know i think we have to be open to the possibility that maybe some of those claims are going to turn out to be true but secondly and kind of more important from a psychologist's point of view we know that most people do actually endorse at least one paranormal claim And, you know, some people live their whole lives according to this. So if we as psychologists can't say anything to explain why that would be uh, and just kind of dismiss it all as saying, oh, well, we all know it's nonsense. You know, it's it's really not answering the question, is it? Um, And so gradually, um, although uh, initially I felt that my kind of interest in this in research in this area was tolerated rather than encouraged, uh, it just got to a point where I thought, this is the stuff that really interests me. And actually, I think attitudes have changed. People now do realize that, um yeah, these are important questions to ask. They can answer all kinds of questions about profound issues like the nature of consciousness. Um, or at least they can address them if not answer them. I should <laughs> maybe rain back a bit there. Um, and I mean, and more recently, again, I you know, one of the areas we've got interested in is the whole psychology of belief in conspiracy theories, because a lot of the uh, processes, the psychological factors that are related to belief in the paranormal also seem to be relevant on that topic. And of course, that has become very much a kind of uh, to the forefront of late, thanks to uh, a certain American president, amongst others. Um, And so, you know, there are important questions about, you know, what, what, for, what, makes people believe certain things, sometimes in the absence of any compelling evidence.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely want to come back to the conspiracy theories um, aspect, because I noticed that you've been writing about that quite a bit recently. I, I mean, there are some its fascinating insight into it, into just the kind of the fallibility of the human brain in some ways, I suppose, that we all assume it's this perfect organ, that the way we think. And increasingly, as a, a doctor, a GP delving, it, I, I'm aware that the psychology is offering so much to highlight to us just how much we get conned by our own brains on a regular basis. But it sounds like a niche that could really address that. I saw that one of your early papers was about um you talked about the nature of consciousness was about the um uh, uh near-death experiences mm-hmm. yeah. and the kind of the 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 range of um things that can happen to people in some speculation on what might be going on
1: that's right I mean again I mean for people who have had a near-death experience they're almost they almost unanimously kind of take it at face value, if you like. It's an incredibly profound experience. It's a life-changing experience, and, and nobody's disputing that. Mm. It, uh, to put it you know, in its most basic terms, it's a question of, you know, does it really provide evidence that consciousness can become separated from the physical brain? Does it maybe even provide a glimpse of an afterlife? Or is it a very, very rich and vivid hallucinatory experience and personally i think the evidence stacks up on the side of the, of the latter hypothesis you know i wouldn't say that we know for certain that that's the case but there are plausible explanations non-paranormal explanations for each of the different components that seem to occur um, and also you know we do stand a chance then of actually kind of investigating the whole thing scientifically and one one of the most kind of interesting aspects of near-death experiences, of course, is the out-of-body experience. And that was a topic which for a long time some psychologists showed an interest in. But it was very much a kind of fringe topic, whereas in recent years, thanks to advances, some of them based on technology, some of them just kind of theoretical advances, it's people recognize that actually those kinds of weird experiences where the body image is distorted – are really tied something really, really interesting about the na- the fundamental nature of consciousness,
0: yeah, so a lot of this is all tied in, and i 'm interested in your own views, but a lot of it is is tied in with skepticism, and that 's something that I wanted to ask you about because Skepticism is something that perhaps maybe didn't exist in the same way. Uh, And it's almost been uh, uh, back in the 80s, but it's been a kind of an offshoot of the evidence based, certainly from my perspective, it's gone along with that evidence based medicine movement. And I kind of, which was very much through the, was quite, you know, was just appearing in the 1990s, perhaps a little bit earlier, but was achieved, hitting the mainstream in the 1990s. And evidence based medicines now at the point where you know you you look like a complete fool if you would suggest you practiced medicine in any any other way other than an evidence based way. But skepticism, I wondered how you kind of in terms of the psychological side and the research side, how how you defined it. How 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 do you sort of you obviously I'm I'm put words in your mouth, but you consider yourself a skeptic. But what does that mean to you?
1: Again, well, I mean, again, very good question. I mean, I, as I said, I discovered the joys of skepticism kind of in the early 80s, really. Um, and if you look back, I suppose the modern history of skepticism goes back a little bit further than that, arguably to the kind of 1970s. Uh, there was a group in America that was formed called the, the, the acronym was PSICOP, C-S-I-C-O-P, uh, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. And this was founded by a guy called Paul Kurtz, and amongst the founding members were uh, there's a, a guy called James Randi, who um, I think if if skeptics were allowed to have a patron saint, it would probably be him. But of course, yeah. the patron saint. Um, <laughs> he's a kind of, um, he started off life as a conjurer, but became kind of an arch debunker of paranormal claims. Uh, other. Yeah, Martin Gardner, um, various other people were involved. James Alcock, the guy I mentioned earlier, whose book I read, Ray Hyman, a, a load of other interesting people, um, and they they kind of founded also a publication called Skeptical Inquirer. Um, not long after that, right about the eighties, that the kind of UK version of that started, and I subscribed from quite an early. I just, just this was just the point when I was discovering all this stuff. Um, And really, I mean, what skepticism for me is all about is it's really very simple. It's just kind of saying, well, show me the evidence. It's not starting from a position whereby you kind of dismiss a claim totally, particularly, you know, if it may have a superficial plausibility. It might be true. It might not. Um, But you say, well, show me the evidence. Convince me. And that doesn't strike me as being kind of an unreasonable thing to do. Um, The... And really, I suppose, it's also important to always be open to the possibility that you might be wrong about something. New evidence might come along that makes you change your mind. Um, the uh, I mean, I edited the Skeptic magazine, the UK version, for about 10 years. And I think the kind of strap line I came up with was um, pursuing truth through evidence and reason, I think was it. And I think that... It's quite a quite a reasonable kind of concise summary of what skepticism is for me and as I say that notion that you uh you don't dismiss things without looking at the evidence now obviously in in real life you don't always have time to evaluate every single claim that comes your way and I will admit that some claims just seem too wacky to even be worth the time I mean when you know David Ike is claiming that the world is run by shape-shifting lizards, I'm not going to waste my time investigating. (laughs) I think it's rather implausible. Um, But there are other claims which may or may not be true, and until we investigate them properly, we don't know. And even um, with respect to the paranormal, I think skeptics are often um, overly dismissive about certain claims so for example some of the evidence that parapsychologists have put forward to support the notion that telepathy might really happen it's not immediately obvious what's wrong with the techniques that they're using with you know how you could i think when i first became a skeptic i felt like probably a lot of people do that um parapsychologists were all idiots they didn't know how to design an experiment and uh, Psych- psychics, people who call themselves psychics were all deliberate con artists and charlatans, and that all paranormal beliefs were were dangerous for people. Um, now I don't actually think any of those things now. I've kind of gone from what was probably a fairly extreme position back towards the center ground and realized it's it's a bit more nuanced than that. And with respect to um how it is that sometimes parapsychologists can produce what appears to be positive evidence in favor of the existence of things like telepathy and precognition. I think what's interesting there is, well, that tells us something about the kind of limits of how science works. You know, that tells us about some of the weaknesses in the scientific method. You know, science in the kind of abstract is fantastic, and I'm a great supporter of it. But the point is, one of the problems is that it's done by people. (laughs) (laughs) scientists are people and they have we have the same biases all of us you know we might try our best to control for them but they're always going to be there
0: i think that's absolutely fascinating and i think the bit about it being nuanced and that you've come back to that is really interesting and there's a tiny echo and not in the, the same way with my own journey in that certainly kind of 10 15 years ago i was involved in the skeptic community and you know bashing homeopathy and kind of involved in that and I kind of stepped away from it because I came a little bit uncomfortable about some of the kind of the militancy of the scepticism, and that there perhaps wasn't room in there, some of those discussions that were going on for, um, for a more nuanced approach. And certainly, as a clinician, that you see people who you see people who use homeopathy, and there mm. are kind of and actually, you can't sit in front of a room, sit in a room with them, have a consultation, and be hostile towards them because of it, because it is nuanced, it is complicated they are getting something from it and even if okay that's just the interaction between them and the you know the the, home, the other person who the you know who's facilitating it that's still something that they're experiencing something they're getting benefit from and that doesn't condone the science uh, of homeopathy and all the other things that go with it but I became very uncomfortable and drew back from it a little bit.
1: I think there's, I mean, I think that's right and I, I think there's a I, I think it's fair to say that there's also a kind of difference in flavor between American scepticism and the British version. I don't think the British version is quite as militant, mm-hmm. probably because it doesn't need to be. I mean, in this country, I think it always fascinates me that you know, the Americans would probably prefer to elect a paedophile as president rather than an atheist. You know, they really <laughs> would not be at all happy at the idea of ever having an atheist in any position of power. Mm. Whereas the situation seems to be reverse over here. I mean, it turns out that Tony Blair was actually quite deeply religious but that was all kept under wraps, you know. Uh, we don't do religion was the famous line that was used with respect to that. About, um and I think that says something about the differences. I mean, obviously, in America, kind of a very fundamentalist version of Christianity is much more prevalent, and it takes a lot more courage to speak up if actually you don't share that belief system, and you know, you could mm-hmm. end up, you know, being being hurt uh, over here we can talk about these things. And, you know, you can have people's, you know, at a dinner party who share a whole range of different views on religion, and it's not likely to get, you know, turned to, to fisticuffs, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we're far, we're far uh, you yeah, know, sophisticated for that. But um, I think partly as a result of that, the American version of skepticism is often kind of there's a lot of military metaphors that are used and it's a kind of, we're all going to be wiped out by this rising tide of irrationalism and so on and so forth. Um, And yeah, I I just don't think that's true. I mean, I think what we do need to do is to identify where those irrational beliefs can be dangerous Mm. and they they can be, you know, Um, you look at the anti-vax movement as a, as a prime example, uh, but also kind of climate change, denial, uh, the way that conspiracy theories are often a motivation behind terrorism acts, and and so on and so forth. There's a lot of a lot of examples where you, that you could point to. Um, but ultimately, I think you know we're all fundamentally irrational. We all have those irrational biases in our own makeup, and and in some ways, I mean, I kind of you know, I kind of celebrate our irrationality. Um, I think you know the kind of Surrealist art and all that kind of stuff—I love it, fascinating. But I think if you have to make important decisions that are going to affect your own life or other people's lives, it's probably always best to try and be as rational and unemotional as you can be in trying to do a- to evaluate the evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and absolutely, I'm a big—you know—I've never moved away from that evidence-based kind of approach. I think that's the way to go. But it's—I realised that trying to interpret it, particularly for individuals, is can be a lot more challenging than you mentioned there. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, okay, you you would have a kind of much bigger challenge there because obviously, uh, you know, I'm I'm not working in the clinical area, but I'm, what I am aware of is that you know I, I will quite happily kind of stand up and condemn things like homeopathy and other kind of and quack treatments for cancer and so on and so forth in the kind of abstract in the general terms, but when I am faced with a person, particularly say someone you know with a terminal condition um and their relatives are relatives to saying oh we're going to try mistletoe therapy or we're going to try you know the latest quack craze it's then much more difficult to actually say to that person you know you really shouldn't do that yes. it's, because it's it's it, you, you can understand the desperation i mean i don't i'm pretty sure i wouldn't go down that road but I can understand people who do. Yeah,
0: definitely a challenge, and I think it gets evidence-based medicine gets more complicated as well because it's often based on the the scientific method. Often relies on numbers and you know statistical analysis and other things, particularly for the sort of that positivistic kind of approach, at least anyway, and the, the. That doesn't always translate well to individuals either. And it's impossible to know whether, you know, even like aspirin for secondary prevention of, you know, after a heart attack, you can never know whether you're the individual who's going to be stopped from having a future heart attack or a stroke, or whether you're the individual who has the um, uh, fatal hemorrhage. Gastrointestinal hemorrhage, and so there are always those sort of weaknesses of interpretation of evidence, and I think that's kind of an ongoing challenge for. And you know, well, I mean, thank goodness it means we'll have doctors for a wee bit longer, so I won't be out of a job just yet, and it won't be done by Google. But it does. I think sometimes skepticism doesn't always doesn't always engage on the individual level. At least some of the discussions I remember having ten or fifteen years ago, they weren't coping with that individual level as well. Yeah.
1: Well, as I say, I think. I mean, I think. I mean, skepticism is a. Is is a kind of broad church, if you're allowed to say that, you know, <laughs> um, and that you've you've got at the one extreme, you do have those kind of kind of quite aggressive sceptics, uh, and then you've got a whole continuum. I mean, I you know I will sometimes find that I feel I've got more in common with the kind of moderates on the other side of the debate on something like say parapsychology. Than the really extreme people that are supposedly on the same side as me, but you know, I think there are, there is room for all of those different viewpoints. Is what makes life interesting, you know. I mean, I, and I can I can respect people without having to agree 100 percent with every single thing that they say. Mm. And sometimes, even with the kind of more extreme views on my side of the debate, it's not so much what's being said it's how it's being said and why it's being said that i've got an issue with um i think it's much better to take an approach where you actually say well you know okay i can to to the person you disagree with i can see why you might think that but have you thought that maybe this might be the explanation you know just it's trying to figure out where they're coming from um Rather than kind of you know making people feel stupid and you know dismissing their ideas, I think sometimes it's appropriate to to kind of take that more. I mean, you know, I have no time at all for um, people I know are deliberate con artists who are exploiting vulnerable people. You know, they deserve to be treated aggressively, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but if you're dealing with the kind of just the ordinary person who's who's maybe trying some form of alternative medicine because. They read in some magazine that it's it's good for you, you know. Uh, they're, they're not they're not stupid. They're just yeah. trying to make their lives and get the most out of them like the rest of us.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they're often in pain or just there's lots of other things going on. So yeah. I, I and I think it's nice to have to have those conversations. That's if we start getting all you know polarization is perhaps one of the, um, the mo- most prevalent modern important problems we have in terms of people being polarized in their views, and we won't even go down the Brexit route today but uh, kind of there are there are people are just that is a problem I think that uh, we are experiencing what so let, one thing I should ask about as you mentioned about biases there and I should ask about the conspiracy theory stuff and whether it's 9/11 or you know and I think you had an article in the Guardian a few years ago at the at the anniversary of the JFK um, assassination what are the kind of biases that people have that lead them to kind of be attracted or move towards conspiracy theories
1: Well, I mean there are there are a lot I mean just to mention a few of them um, I mean with uh, there's a kind of what, what's called a proportionality bias, and that basically refers to the fact that we we tend to have we have a tendency to think that big effects must have big causes. So the idea that a lone gunman was responsible for the assassination of j f k no that's not a big enough that's not a big enough um, cause. So it must be a much bigger conspiracy or the idea that a, a tipsy driver was responsible for the death of Diana. No, there must be something more behind it. Uh, and, and, you know, the, as I say, the research on this doesn't just come from belief in conspiracy type studies, but from um, a range of other areas. I mean, one, of my, one of my favorite studies uh, was about an outbreak of some kind of disease in a zoo um and give people various scenarios and ask them kind of to rate the kind of you know how plausible they see them and it turns out that people are much more likely to think that if it's a big outbreak a big epidemic you know within uh, a big outbreak there then it was probably a big animal like a bear of course (laughs) whereas if it's kind of more contained that might be a bunny rabbit you know what i mean and it's uh (laughs) it's, it's, it's so that's one example um Another kind of bias that comes into play is something called um, intentionality bias, or sometimes it's called agenticity. And this is the idea that, and again, we all share these biases, the idea that whenever something happens, it happens because someone or something made it happen. And we, I mean, children have this kind of bias quite explicitly as you get older, generally it's, it's something that you kind of you might initially think in that way but you very quickly or un- unconsciously almost close that down and actually acknowledge that you know maybe the tapping on the window in the night is the wind blowing something against your window rather than a burglar and so on but you know but you can see it's still there we've still got it underneath in evolutionary terms it makes sense it makes sense to assume now I in mean, our brains have evolved to keep us alive not to help us uh you know ascertain the truth with a capital T about the way the universe is. And in that kind of evolutionary perspective, you can see that it's probably best to always assume there's a potential threat there because if you're wrong, you've not lost very much by that error. But, you know, if you assume there isn't one there and there is, well, you lose an awful lot. So our brains tend to make the mistake of making kind of links that maybe aren't really there, seeing patterns, which makes us, you know very successful as a species, but also we we overplay it. We see patterns in randomness. We make cause and effect relationships that aren't actually really there. Uh, and that's you know obviously at the heart of a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, and I mean another one that people have looked at is is just the kind of projection bias. If you give people a series of scenarios, basically saying, you know if you were in this situation, would you engage in a conspiracy? And people who say, well, yeah, I probably would, <laughs> they're the ones who are more likely to believe in conspiracy, which, again, makes sense because you assume that, um, well, if I'd do it, most people would do it. Therefore, it's probably being done. Whereas you're the kind of person who says, oh, my God, no, I'd never do that. You assume everybody else is like you and therefore the conspiracy probably isn't happening. So, as I say, there's lots of um, really interesting biases. Uh, I think they come together uh, in con- belief in conspiracies, and what you find is that people kind of resort to all kinds of magical thinking, that tendency that we've got, which for me would cover belief in you know, implausible conspiracies um, paranormal beliefs I mean for me as an atheist religious beliefs but all those kind of things tend to increase in situations where people feel that things are out of their control and so maybe yeah you know, maybe one of the benefits of it is to at least give people an illusory sense of control, which might be might help them to cope with going through whatever they're going through. yeah on the on the periphery, people who feel marginalised who are much more likely to endorse conspiracy theories.
0: Yeah, I think. Um, gosh, I of all theologies, like looking at blokeology, I think psychology is my favorite. It's in- is increasingly becoming my favorite, and the kind of biases and the, fallas- uh, the fallacies that exist out there that we all and I, 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 we were laughing about them there. But of course, we have to laugh and know that we're exactly the same. We, just, <laughs> we do them all as well. And but yep. actually, I, I like to think that knowing about them maybe increases my chances of kind of you know, making rational decisions in a good kind of, in a good sceptic way, making rational decisions which take into account my terrible biases and, and the fallacies out there.
1: Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, this is why I'm a fan of, of science and the scientific method, because at least it acknowledges, or at least at it its best it does, that we are prone to these biases. And that's why we need things like double blind clinical trials. Um, you know, we, we have to take our own possible biases into account and think of ways to try and control for them. Um, and, and proceed that way. But of course, they're still there. You know, I mean, if we're trying to evaluate um, some complex set of results from a wide range of studies, if I start off already as someone who doesn't believe in the claim effect and you start off as someone who does, we're likely to look at exactly the same data set. And come to different conclusions you know it's quite plausible that would happen but as you say the only chance we've got is to try our best just try and be as honest as you can be and look at the result I mean when we I mean some one of the things that we do sometimes we do actually test paranormal claims um, and when we do that we do it in collaboration with the person that we're testing we, we design the test and we you know anything that they would like us to include in terms of the conditions that we do it under, we will try and include as long as it doesn't actually compromise experimental control. And we'll get them to sign something in advance saying this is a fair test of my claim. And then when they've done the test and and they've failed the test, then they will actually decide it wasn't a fair test after all. (laughs) But it's only at that point that they'll actually make that decision. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and do you find that's the case that when you when you test people who have these strongly held beliefs, even presented with objective evidence, how many times do they? Would they, I mean, your view obviously shifted many years ago when you kind of you started looking in more detail and read a sceptical sort of text. Do you, how do you find that experience is when you do te- those tests on people? Do they do they tend to, uh, you know, explain it away? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yes, I mean um, <laughs> almost always. Always in the tests that we've done um and as i say we do go to great lengths we get people to sign something in advance and then they do the test and it's we, we tested one uh medium who her, her reaction was really refreshing because we we, we we ran the test we showed we we analyzed us we showed her the results and basically she said well you know i quote i'm gobsmacked i should have been able to pass that test I thought, wow, that's amazing. That never happened, you know. But within two days, <laughs> she decided now, actually. There was no way she could have passed that test. It was, uh, you know. And I said, but I can understand where that's coming from. If you are so convinced. I mean, this is someone, for a start, who made her living by doing psychic readings. Um, and so she was clearly convinced. You know, the, the only options for her were either that um, she really does have psychic powers and she's providing a valuable service to these people who give her money to do readings, or she's waste, you know, n- wasting their time, and you know she doesn't have it, and you know it's not I say, a fraud because she genuinely believed it, but you know, she should kind of stop doing it. And yeah. so, yeah, she just convinced herself that yeah, she still has the powers.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, things like that is so tightly bound up in their identity. It would be an enormous sort of psychological blow to to, to let go, wouldn't it?
1: Exactly. I mean, and the people that you might be able to influence are so the kind of not the ones at the extreme. And that goes for both extremes. Uh, it's the ones who are in the middle, people who might actually um, have seen something, read something that suggests that, you know, maybe there is something in this idea. And if you can point out to them, well, actually, no, you know, if you look at the evidence and point them in this direction, then, you know, they might say, oh, right, fine. You know, but they've not got that massive investment as you point out is not part of their self-concept their self-image so they can change their minds. you do get situation i mean even in my case you know i was i was very much a believer but and i I wasn't kind of obsessed (laughs) with the paranormal you know i read books i kind of watched tv programs uh but it wasn't particularly a central part of my life um, you do occasionally get situations where people who are kind of have much more extreme views do an about turn, but it's extremely rare. It's extremely rare.
0: Yeah, you don't you you don't hear it at all, do you? And particularly thinking of religion, you you it's quite relatively rare as well to come across people that go through that sort of transformation and have a sudden have a, sometimes over years people drift away from you know uh, you hear about that and i always think it's quite interesting that they talk about loss of religion i saw i saw melvin bragg an article about melvin bragg the other day that was talking about how you how if you don't really it's always it's always portrayed as a loss
1: there's an upside and an downside to most of these things i mean obviously what you're losing if you lose in your religion is uh Certainly, kind of your belief in life after death probably goes with it. And for (laughs) most people, that's something they would probably like to be true, even if, you know, in the heart of hearts, they know it isn't. Um, And I mean, the other side, of course, is the kind of uh, community, particularly if it was a central part of your life. Um, I mean, I I run Greenwich Skeptics in the pub, and so it's a great opportunity to get kind of interesting people to come along. Uh, we had, we've had a couple recently who were people you'd have been very interested in. You may already be familiar with them. Um, people who were kind of, uh, one was a naturopath, Brit Hermes. I don't know if you've heard of Brit, but she's uh, a very impressive young woman. Um, she was making a very successful living as a naturopath. And then she was one of these people where she suddenly kind of realized for various reasons that it was not true it was all nonsense and so she became an outspoken critic of naturopathy um the other one is a it was someone who was a very successful wellness guru in the n- kind of nutritional field uh, pixie turner um and uh you know pixie had a very similar kind of experience in some ways and it was i think in her case it was perhaps possibly more of a gradual process um but she did feel she was living a lie. She she had a kind of very successful blog and she was telling all of her, I think, probably about 100,000 followers about how fantastic she felt because she had cut out all of these things out of her diet. And, you know, and in actual fact, she was feeling terrible. And her social life had been affected because, you know, first of all, she cut out sugar, then she cut out something else, then she cut out something else until so it got to a point where there's a very limited range of foods that she could actually. Feel comfortable eating, which meant that she couldn't socialise. She'd never go out for a meal with anyone, or go for a drink, or anything like this. And and her life was miserable, despite having to put on this act. Mm-hmm. And, and she felt obviously she felt, I think, kind of liberated once she'd been able to kind of come out as, as not believing any of that stuff anymore. But of course, that left all the people that were the most important people in her life behind, because they now didn't follow this. Sorry, some of them might have done, but most of them. You know, she was rejected by her former community. So, uh, um, yeah, I've got huge admiration for people who can do that, but it's asking a lot of them.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, there was, we've we covered actually it was a few episodes ago that we did talk about orthorexia. I had a um dietitian on and we we're chatting about that, which is very much that kind of pattern of behaviour. And
1: both of these two, Brit Hermes and Pixie, both said yes, they that, that's exactly what they suffered from. which is not kind of a a recognized condition yet is it but it sounds as if it ought to be by the sound of it
0: yeah you're absolutely right it hasn't been formally kind of it hasn't fallen into the international classification icd diagnoses or the like just yet it looks fairly compelling though and there's certainly an international working group on it and a big crossover with obsessive compulsive disorder as perhaps more so even than um eating disorders like anorexia um, but yeah, they're they're very. They sound they they are certainly they are kind of sound like very typical cases of orthorexia. So it's interesting they said that.
1: I think I mean I think it is, I mean again and and this I think kind of fits a lot of other myths that you'll be very familiar with the kind of um, the whole kind of notion of anything that's natural is good you know nothing that's natural can harm you which is obviously nonsense when you stop and think about it for a few seconds and that uh, any kind of you know I mean. I, I don't correct me if I'm wrong I do not claim to be an expert on nutrition, but I kind of get the impression that beyond the general idea that we should all eat more fruit and veg and less fatty foods and you know certainly less uh, alcohol um, <laughs> that you know there's, there's a lot of the kind of very precise claims that people come up with about superfoods and uh, obviously isn't really based on good science, is, is my impression. Would you go along with that? Do you know more about this than that?
0: Oh, we've, and we've we've talked about it a little bit, and yeah, I think it's very hard to pick out the bones of it. There are, interestingly, I've had some conversations um, in, not, just a little while ago about um, how sometimes the scientific method, as it's exactly designed for like randomised controlled trials and placebo double blind controlled trials and things like that for medications, is actually a really poor fit in terms of good science for nutrition and yeah. it's a little bit so you need a kind of a slightly more nuanced approach with observational evidence and once you start digging into that it's very you know, it's all about associations and it's extraordinarily difficult to pick out uh, and, and again it's become very polarized you know to that you know high fat good low and or you know or and you need low carb or high car, it's all over the place it's yeah. become a very difficult um discussion for people to pick their bones out of and i think you're right that moderation is almost certainly in somewhere in the middle there are certain things that clearly we don't do very well particularly in terms of western diets like fruit and veg Mm -hmm. and processed meat and some but some of the signals got lost in the noise as well like things like there is good evidence that processed meats do increase the risk of cancer
1: yeah
0: um i've seen skeptics rail against that as well though and it's true that the relative risk is the absolute risk is increase is small but there's a pretty clear relative risk increase yeah. and of course on population terms and in global terms that it then becomes important but it's very but again that comes back to the kind of you know population medicine versus individual having a exactly. bacon butty or a kind of you know a salami on an individual level doesn't feel like a very risky thing to do and on an individual level it really isn't but if you change the diet across millions yeah. of people an awful lot of your people will die of cancer
1: yeah, uh, and again, that raises the whole issue that we are not very good at understanding risk. Mm. Not something that comes to us naturally, and the media then play that awful game of sensationalising. You know that uh, you know if, if, if something has increased a risk factor by ten, if it was an incredibly low risk to begin with. It's not that important in the scheme of things at the individual level, as you're saying. You know, yeah. uh, so but yeah. You know, it's it's very difficult to kind of um, get. I mean, the the whole kind of problem. You know, talking about the different biases underlie paranormal belief and conspiracy beliefs earlier. I mean, our poor understanding of probability certainly crops up with respect to paranormal beliefs, because very often the, the the most obvious skeptical counter explanation for a paranormal claim is. Maybe it was just a coincidence, you know, the kind of you had that dream and then two days later something happened in your life that seemed to correspond to the dream. Well, yeah, you know, there are over 7 billion of us on the planet. And if we all remember one dream every night, that's a huge number of opportunities for such a match to take place. And what would be really spooky is if it never took place. (laughs) That would take some explaining. You know, the fact that it does is exactly what we'd expect. We're not surprised when people win the national lottery chances of winning it one in 45 million I'll be the, the jackpot I'm talking about um 1 in 45 million but we're not surprised because we know a lot of people play it and so it's going to happen um but yes we we're not very good with probabilities and numbers none of us are you know it's not something that uh, that comes very uh, very easily to us and therefore often we're very impressed when we experience something that Somebody else may say it was just a coincidence, but we're pretty convinced it wasn't. There's something else going on there.
0: Yeah, we, do, we suffer a terrible sort of temporal bias in that regard. And you see that all the time in clinical practice that, you know, and vaccines are, we talk about anti vaxxers, but vaccines are a good example. Oh, when yeah. You have your flu vaccine and then you come down with a cold in two or three days' time. Yeah. You, it's a pretty nailed uncertainty that most people will go, well, that was my vaccine that done that. They, yeah they, that's what happened there and of course you know you, you know even children have like you know the average is 6 or 7 or something like that upper respiratory tract infections every season every yeah. year or whatever it is and so it, it would be astonishing if you didn't pick up you know a large percentage of people didn't pick up a cold in the week following mm-hmm. a flu vaccine or yeah. whatever it is but we um but again it's a, it's an extraordinarily useful human quality that's done served as well in evolutionary terms for you know tens of thousands of years
1: because particularly if it's something that, it you know, it like, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you eat that berry, you get sick. Yeah. Even if you that berry that made you sick, it's still safer just to avoid that berry. You know, eat, eat, eat other berries, you know. <laughs> but the, the kind of underlying logic there, I mean, as it applies to the kind of MMR vaccine, you know, the underlying logic, because you, you talked about this earlier, that certainly back in the day when Wakefield was first making his claims, the media although they now kind of universally condemn him as if they were totally innocent, <laughs> their coverage was was terrible in that respect. You'd have on the one hand a kind of dry epidemiological data and on the other hand a crying mother. <laughs> and clearly the crying mother is going to have the emotional impact that the dry statistics will never have. Um, and the underlying logic of the, of the kind of argument was would almost take a bit extreme be that yeah nobody who had the m m r no no kid who have ever had the m m r vaccine should ever develop autism well, clearly some of them will you know even if there's no link whatsoever, some of them will you'll you'll have those cases, but then that you know that one mother crying you know that's what carries the emotional punch and that's what lead, led to, to so many people deciding I'm not. the other thing of course being that we have a bias towards We feel less guilty about not taking an action, which might then lead to negative consequences, than actually taking an action that might potentially lead to negative consequences. So, you know, if we actually take our child for a vaccination and then something terrible happens, that would feel worse to us than not taking them because, you know, we think we're protecting them and so
0: yeah it's I it's one of the, i guess it's a manifestation of that omission bias isn't it that Certainly. that goes on there and the, the interesting thing is that whole mmr thing and i i was kind of blogging at that time when the mmr was still it was a very live issue we're, i was at a I was at a training event on saturday and we were talking about how to recognize measles again because it's it's still yeah. you know we're still in a situation where people are not keen to the the vaccination rates for um measles and mmr are still nowhere near high enough to damp down the the um uh to get to the point of which we've got herd immunity um, mm-hmm. and so we're still seeing a lot of cases bubbling up and and in astonishing numbers in some parts of Europe as well and uh, in fact a lot of them a lot of the measles we're seeing is getting imported back in it's you know people that are traveling to France or um certain parts of eastern Europe in particular and then children are coming back with measles
1: yeah, I no mean, and again you know I mean that's one of the kind of prime examples of a situation where What has effectively become a conspiracy, massive conspiracy theory that, you know, Big Pharma deliberately um, taking this approach and that it's damaging people, um, does have these very real, very negative consequences. Mm.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the wonderful things you do is obviously the Greenwich Skeptics in the pub is obviously a great chance to go down and talk to people about all these things. And I'm not sure if we've got a local event up here in Cumbria. Actually, there might be one in Lancaster, but I'm thinking I should make an effort to get along
1: I think you should start one you really. <laughs> you should found one you'd be surprised at how how easy it is i yeah. mean i would, i mean I'd, you know I've been involved in this kind of the world of skepticism for a very long time so i I know a lot of people, but it's very few people you know actually kind of turn you down if you invite them to do a talk, and again, typically with skeptics in the pub, we don't pay our speakers, we cover expenses. Yeah, you know, take them for a meal, make sure they have a lot to drink if they want a lot to drink. Um, but, you know, we can't afford to pay massive fees or any fees for that matter. But people are still willing to come and, and do the talks and they have a good time and we have a good time. And what I particularly like is it's very much um, a kind of grassroots thing, as I said earlier. I mean, at one talk, I actually asked how many people in the audience either were students at university or worked at university. And it was only about 10%, which I thought was brilliant. You know, 90% of the audience were just people down your streets who thought, oh, that was interesting. I'll go along and listen, you know.
0: Yeah, because that's nice because there's a real danger working univers- uh, in a university myself that you just you live in this little bubble uh, yeah. uh, academic and you start to and I, I, you worry about that because that's obviously a bias in itself, isn't it? That You're never outside of it. Yeah, um, I, yeah I'm feeling quite inspired. I'm going to check it out, Chris, because I think I, I do. I, it's just chatting to you's reminded me how much I value these things and that kind of sceptical approach. And it doesn't have to be. I think I, after a little bit after moving away a little bit and just rebalancing, I
1: feel I can go back again. Yeah, well, as I say, I think that the. Um, I think, I'll, again, as I say, it's a very broad church, but I think a lot of the most influential skeptics up and down the country are probably more your kind of skeptic rather than the kind of aggressive, we know best type. Um, I don't know if you ever got to the QED conference up in Manchester.
0: No, I uh, haven't.
1: They're not That's having one this year, but the, it's the first year for a long time they haven't, and that is a fantastic uh, conference. And and very much the the guys who organise that, I know them all very well, and you know, they, their, their kind of kind of scepticism is, I think, the sort that you would approve of, you know. Um, And there's a lot of humour. There's an amazing, you know, there there, there is an awful lot of humour to be had, and not, you know, the kind of superior sneering, ridiculing. I mean, sometimes that's 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 needed, (laughs) that's that's merited. But, you know, there there is just a a generally kind of feel-good atmosphere there. I mean, I know we said we wouldn't talk about Brexit, but, I mean, I was on the march (laughs) on uh, Saturday. And, again, it's that same kind of feeling that these are nice, reasonable people that I'm with, you know. And, again, you feel part of the community, as we were talking about earlier.
0: Well, well well, well done for going down. I I had a a pre-booked event in Manchester myself, my training event, so couldn't have made it. But, um, gosh, I certainly uh – uh, it, it looked an impressive occasion.
1: It was. It was brilliant. Fantastic. And <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. one of the things
0: I would say about the skeptics is it's, it isn't it isn't just about kind of debunking either. Is you've got lots of your list of speakers coming up at um, skeptics in the Greenwich uh, mm-hmm. Greenwich sceptics in the pub. It's just really interesting science and lots of different little niches. It just looks really fascinating.
1: Well, I think that's another thing to say that the uh, the kind of remit has has developed. Because when I got into the whole thing all well, those years ago. It was very much focused on paranormal claims, and that was pretty much it. Whereas, as you can see from looking at the list of speakers that we've got coming up and the ones we've had in the past, it really—I just use it as an excuse to get interesting people coming along talking about interesting things. Nice if there's a bit of a skeptical bent to it, but there doesn't have to be. Um, And also, even with you know, within the scepticism, the the kind of—I mean, like the topic of fake news, for example is obviously really, really important at the moment. Um, And so so it's gone into politics. I think people are now far more willing to talk about religious claims than they once were. I mean, mean, the very first column I ever wrote for the Guardian Science Pages was at a point where even those sceptics in the pub Used to be just one branch in, in London. Uh, They've been going for a good few years, but I mean, typically, kind of 30, 40 people would come, and you know, I, w- I would be one of them. Uh, but then it suddenly blossomed, and we had two or three hundred people turning up every month. Um, and then, and skepticism suddenly started to become kind of much more noticeable. You know, there was a lot of celebrities: uh, Tim Minchin, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Fry, all these people who seemed to be kind of much more vocal about their views. And one of the questions I asked was, you know, what what was that? What are the factors behind that? And obviously you can only speculate, but I think obviously the good old internet is, is an important factor. But uh, Richard Dawkins' um, God Delusion had just been a bestseller. Um, and there were various kind of factors coming together that I think that kind of led to that. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, I think it's a very important thing to try to get people it's not about telling them what to think it's about trying to give them the critical thinking skills to evaluate the evidence and make their own minds up that's that's it at the end of the day
0: yeah absolutely well i think it's a it's a it's a wonderful that you've been just reinvigorated me a little bit about it so i'm going to look again so chris you should tell us where can we find out a little bit more about all the things that you're doing related to skepticism your own work with the anomalistic psychology unit whereabouts are you found
1: uh, probably the best bet would be – and I'm terrible at keeping websites updated, but uh, you'll get a good feel for it at least if you go to the uh, APRU website, the Anomalous Psychology Research Unit website, and that would be www.gold.ac.uk forward slash APRU. Um, and there is an email list there which I use just to kind of tell people about forthcoming events. If you want to sign up for that, then that's free. Um, so, Yeah. That'll
0: be it. Grant, well, we'll make sure we get a link up for that. Chris, thank you so much.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again.